0: Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Dr. Anish Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join in, you can email your questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, it's a conversation about head and neck pathology with Dr. Manju Prasad. Dr. Prasad is professor of pathology at Yale School of Medicine, and here's Dr. Stephen Gore.
1: So, um, pathology. I tend to think of the old TV show Quincy, uh, which I guess would be considered forensic pathology. He used to solve a lot of crimes for those of our audience who probably are too young to remember. Uh, but pathology is a lot more than than Who Done It, of course. Is that right?
2: Sure. Um, in the good old days that you mentioned, uh, there was a colloquial term, doctor of death, used yes. for pathology, but that's really, really an outdated impression of or description of pathologists. We still have forensic pathology that that investigate the um, criminal nature of death, but pathology has much more evolved into diagnostic pathology and diagnostic surgical pathology. For example, there is absolutely no cancer that can be treated unless there is a solid diagnosis, and that comes from pathology.
1: Right, so I think that um, many of our listeners may be surprised to learn that, um, that among pathologists there are so many regional specialties or organ specialties. I think people are used to there being surgeons and gynecologists and internal medicine doctors and subspecialists within all those fields. But uh, I guess it's true in pathology as well. Is that right?
2: More and more so now, especially in academic pathology, we are realizing that knowledge has exploded so much that it's rather than to be a jack of all trades, we would like to be masters of one and so Pathology has now um, gotten um, developed several different subspecialties like pulmonary pathology and breast pathology and gynecologic pathology. My area is head and neck and endocrine pathology. So it's simply to accommodate the explosion of knowledge and to bring the benefits of those discoveries and research to our patients in those areas.
1: And was that true earlier in your career, in your career during your training was were pathologists already sort of focusing on certain areas? I I guess I can think back to when I was training which is probably longer ago than you. Certainly in my field of of blood malignancies there were always hematopathologists in the places that I trained.
2: Yeah, there were always hematopathologists because blood is not a solid organ it's a fluid. Um, at the same time, there were also neuropathologists because the brain was so complex. And at some point, dermatopathology yeah. developed too, because the skin is a huge, huge organ from head to toe. And, Especially
1: for those of us who are chubbier in our BMIs. Right. <laughs>
2: so they have more skin than others. And then slowly, everything else used to be called general pathology. Right. Like I remember, doing gynecology, looking at uteruses as well as kidneys, as well as lungs and then head and neck. But then our Our challenges were easy. We had to determine, is it benign or malignant? And once we call it cancer, was it invasive or non-invasive? And then the oncologist, who had very limited choices in those days, and the radiation oncologist, who just radiated everything that was malignant. So patients had fewer choices, and pathologists also had fewer diagnostic areas. But now the explosion of science, and both in treatment of cancers and in the nature of cancers and our own knowledge has exploded so much that we really need to know one field and know it really, really well.
1: Hmm. Fascinating. So when I think back to uh, anatomy and uh, you know, with the disclosure that I was a Yale medical student where back in the day, pathology wasn't highly emphasized in terms of having to really memorize a lot of things, uh, truth be known. But I do remember the head and neck to be among the most complex uh, set of anatomical structures. And I think of blood vessels and nerves and muscles and the larynx and the thyroid gland and parathyroid gland and tongue and mouth and adenoids and so many things is is that all in your purview?
2: It is all in my purview and thank you for elaborating the long <laughs> list of I'm organs sure it wasn't exhaustive. <laughs> within the head and neck area and bone and soft tissue and bone and soft tissue is everywhere else as well. And also head and neck also includes skin and about almost 60% of the dermatologic cancers and lesions occur in the head and neck area, which is very much exposed to the sun Hmm. compared to the rest of the body. So in a way, you could say it's a very, very large um, area to deal with, but at the same time, it's above the neck, so at least I deal with a limited number of surgeons. And um, the oncologist and the radiation oncologist also make part of the tree, uh, the cancer management team. So how does
1: this work? So um, let's say uh, a patient is having some kind of surgery uh, in the uh, neck, I guess, and something is removed. Um, do you know about that ahead of time or does it get triaged at a central pathology, you know, clearing house or? How does that work?
2: So let's start from the very beginning. Let's say a patient has a painless ulcer in on his tongue. It doesn't hurt him, he's not too bothered, but he has noticed, and he goes to a dentist first for his routine visit, and mm-hmm. the dentist notices that there is this small painless ulcer that the patient is not even complaining about and suggests a biopsy. So it starts from that very point. That biopsy would come to a surgical pathologist like me, and the question would be rule out cancer. And then if it does turn out to be cancer, then the patient, would be referred to a head and neck surgeon, or cancer surgeon at that point. Now this surgeon would do an extensive radiological workup, do a CAT scan, an MRI, try to figure out has the cancer already spread to his neck lymph nodes, and all of this could still be painless. The patient has still no complaints, has not yet started to lose weight, and At the same time, the cancers could have spread and may not be a very early cancer at that point. Based upon all this radiological imaging, the surgeon would have to then decide how much of the tongue needs to come out. And can he get the entire cancer out with the minimum amount of surgery so that the patient can still speak clearly and still swallow, and those critical functions are not affected, Mm -hmm. and make sure that the cancer doesn't come back, and if possible, avoid both radiation and chemotherapy because they have uh, their own um, uh, side effects to, to come with. Now, when the patient goes for surgery and is under anesthesia, the intraoperative pathology consultation becomes very, very critical. So the question the surgeon asks the pathologist is, are the margins clear? Did I get all the cancer out? And if they are clear, how close is the closest margin? Is it one millimeter or five millimeter? Now, in the oral cavity, the surgeon doesn't have, or the patient doesn't have the luxury of a lot of spare tissue, like in the skin you can give a 5-centimeter margin. In the oral cavity, it's a couple millimeters. Mm. But if those margins are negative, and the pathologist has to decide very quickly what we call frozen sections, within 10 to 20 minutes or 30 minutes, how far every margin is.
1: So wait a minute. So the patient is still under anesthesia. Very much so. And you get this piece of frozen tissue, and you've got... 10 or 20 minutes while that person's still anesthetized to come up with this really critical answer?
2: Absolutely. That seems
1: very stressful.
2: It, it is, and actually our frozen section laboratory, the biggest users are the head and neck surgeons because these margins are so critical for them. They would like to get it all out during the first surgery and not be told A week later, that three of the margins were positive Mm. and have to take the patient back to the OR to get more margins. So that's a very, very critical involvement of the pathologist. And then when the final specimen comes, we would re-examine it after fixing it in formalin, embedding the slices. And the slices are three millimeter each, like as thin as, as, as you can imagine, and those would be then embedded in um, liquid paraffin and then cut at five microns and then uh, examine under the microscope. And then an entire synoptic summary is generated of the patient's cancer, how large is- it is, how deep is it invading? Is it beyond the surface of the tongue into the muscle of the tongue? Is it infiltrating the blood vessels? Is it wrapping itself around the nerves Mm. and spreading further? All of this cannot be visualized during gross examination when in the patient's mouth or when we are uh, looking at the tissue grossly. So this has to come from the microscope. And some biomarkers predict the cancer's response to radiation. So then we would apply those biomarkers and prepare a final report. This is guiding not only the surgeon's hand during surgery, but also the radiation and the medical oncologist and guiding the therapy for the patient, Mm. as well as predicting how well will the patient respond to those therapies.
1: Mm. How often Uh, does it happen that you've given clearance during the surgery that it seems like there are clean margins, but then when you review the final pathology, it turns out that that they need further surgery. Does that happen very frequently?
2: It does happen because the frozen section is a preliminary diagnosis, Mm. and there are national guidelines to revising those diagnoses and those preliminary diagnoses because the technique used is rapidly freezing the tissue in liquid nitrogen and then cutting it very rapidly, and these sections are not five micron, they are twice the thickness, so there is room for error in uh, in the interest of speed and helping the surgeon Mm intraoperatively. So um, the error rate is nationally dictated and is less than 5%. In our setting, it's less than, we like to keep it less than 2%.
1: Less than 2%. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty good.
2: It is, and it's still devastating when um, uh, the permanent sections disagree with the frozen, requiring the surgeon to go back, or requiring the radiation oncologist to give targeted radiation to a specific area.
1: Well, this is really a a fascinating area, and I certainly personally am learning a lot about the actual mechanics of pathology. So let's pick this up um, after our break, but right now we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about head and neck pathology with Dr. Manju Prasad.
0: The American Cancer Society estimates that over 1,500 people will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer in Connecticut alone this year. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable, and as a result it's recommended that men and women over the age of 50 have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers such as the one at Yale and at Smilo Cancer Hospital to test innovative new treatments for colorectal cancer. Tumor gene analysis has helped improve the management of the disease by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in a more patient-specific treatment. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.
1: Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore, and we've been talking tonight, we meaning I, have been talking tonight with our guest, uh, Dr. Manju Prasad, about pathology and cancer in her special special area of the head and neck. Manju, before the break, uh, you were... Telling me about how um, how critical critically important your role is in, in the intraoperative evaluation of the pathology specimens, and I'm wondering, um, are you uh, in some ways made aware ahead of time of what kind of surgery uh, the the, the um, surgeon is anticipating in terms of what kind of questions she's going to have about the lymph nodes or anything? Or is this just you get the tissue and you figure out what to do?
2: It works both ways depending upon what the nature of surgery is. Uh, Typically, we'll have a tumor board where the surgeon in a multidisciplinary conference will present the patient, then the radiologist will present all the imaging. Before
1: they've had surgery.
2: Before they have had surgery, so we know what the extent is. The pathologist is sitting there and trying to understand how far spread the tumor is. The surgeon then um, Um, discusses what he's planning to do. There's also oncologist, radiation, and um, medical oncologist. And then when the patient comes to the OR, the head and neck pathologist who has been at these tumor boards kind of knows how bad or how how extensive this tumor is. The surgeons also momentarily would scrub out and come to uh, walk over to pathology. And this whole suite is right adjacent to OR. Oh. And they would, they would be direct face-to-face contact and discussion with the surgeon really? while we are evaluating all these margins. So oh, how interesting.
1: I it, didn't realize it was right there.
2: It was right, it is right there. Our head and neck permanent sign-out desk is right outside the OR in this area. Is that Our, typical? Uh, in, in many, many pla- yeah in many hospitals it is typical we like to be very close to the or so that no time is lost and that face to face communication is critical because so much can be lost just in translation mm-hmm. so um uh, it's but then on the other other hand there would be something like the surgeon doesn't know what he's biopsying, it's just a growth, it could be benign or malignant, and he's trying to deter, or it could be a lymphoma, in which case he would send a frozen section to triage to the pathologist to ask these questions, what should be the future plan? If it is a lymphoma, do you have enough material to work it up? And Stephen, that's your area of expertise. (laughs) If it is a lymphoma, then we would tell the surgeon, stop right there, this is not your case. Just give enough tissue for a lymphoma workup, and the medical oncologist will take over. So so those, they needn't have discussed it at the tumor board. Mm
1: Now, you mentioned um, these patients coming, uh, for example, with a, a, a asymptomatic or painless uh, ulcer. I'm sure like me, many of our patients get uh, canker sores, a uh, mm-hmm. common name for what we would call aphthous ulcers, which in my case are often painful, but yeah. should, should we be worried about those kinds of ulcers that come and go so frequently?
2: Not really, Um, I get apthos ulcers all the time, especially when I was a kid too. They, the, the magic word is they go. They go on their own whether you treat them or not. Right. So these painless ulcers are somewhat different. different. They kind of keep on growing even though they are painless and they are not going away.
1: So is anything that sort of resolves and does you know yeah. goes away we don't have to worry about too much.
2: Yeah, the body has this fantastic ability to heal itself and if it doesn't do so, that's when you start worrying. Also there are patients, some high risk patients, who should worry more when they have a non-healing ulcer
1: who are those patients
2: well the head and neck cancers are very closely uh, linked to both smoking and alcohol and also the chewing of tobacco and mm. in certain cultures they would chew tobacco and keep that uh quid in Yes, their- that's the
1: maryland culture from where i come
2: is that right? Well, It's pretty
1: common in the eastern shore of Maryland, the rural parts of Maryland, for right. sure. Right.
2: And I come from India, and betel nut chewing, beetle nuts, yes. chewing, my grandmother always had a quid in her mouth. Wow. Like she would go to sleep with a quid in her mouth. But she was very lucky. She lived till 82, and all she had was leukoplakias, white patches, and never got cancer. Yeah. So, those are definitely predisposing factors to head and neck cancer. And actually, more lately in the last ten years, it's um, the knowledge has exploded in terms of virus related head and neck cancers. So nearly twenty percent of all of the world's cancers are 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 associated with viruses. And really? In the head and neck, In Asia, we always knew that Epstein-Barr virus was a common cause of cancers in the young.
1: That's the virus that causes mononucleosis, right?
2: True, that too. And uh, also in immunosuppressed individuals, it can cause some uh, hematological malignancies. But lately in the last two decades, one to two decades, human papilloma virus has come up as a major cause of tonsillar cancers in um, middle-aged Caucasian male population in the developed world. Not the developing world, but in the developed countries. Isn't
1: papillomavirus like a warts virus?
2: Right. Papillomavirus is a huge family of like more than 165 genotypes are there. Out of that, only... The genotype HPV-16 is the one linked to tonsillar cancers. And there is a small number of other high-risk genotypes. I think about 13 to 15 of those more than 165 genotypes are cancer associated. The others are relatively benign. Many of them lead to skin warts or warts on mucosas, which are benign, which just need to be taken out. Or even if you leave them and do nothing, they would not develop into cancers.
1: But these tonsillar cancers, this HPV virus, that's a sexually transmitted virus, is that not right? Or am I mistaken it's, about that? No,
2: it's the HPV-16 is sexually transmitted virus.
1: Through oral genital contact.
2: Right, right. Gotcha. And, and already, because we are able to determine what causes this cancer in healthy middle-aged Caucasian males. Who are not smoking and not chewing tobacco, because we know what causes it, we can prevent it. So the recent um, introduction of HPV vaccine in school-age children is going to make this cancer go away over the next generation.
1: This is the Gardasil vaccine. Yes. But uh, I understand that it's the uptake of this vaccine, especially in boys, has not been uh, yet so great as it has been uh, apparently in girls where it prevents cervical cancer, if I'm not mistaken.
2: Exactly. So initially, uh, some governments proactively made laws to vaccinate all girls uh, at a certain age, but it's very important to educate the public and also the people that boys too, and tonsillar cancer is just as horrendous. And if it is just as preventable as cervical cancer, then boys too must be vaccinated
1: yeah. I re- I read in the New York Times this week, um, some a recent study about uh, the papilloma vaccine, the HPV vaccine, and uh, already bringing down the rate of cervical cancers, if I'm not mistaken, I don't know if you saw that story. I read
2: that article too. and That, that was very
1: exciting, I thought. Very
2: exciting, and cervical cancers uh, are already becoming very uncommon in the developed world, but in the developing world, it is still the number one killer in women. In the developed world of Western society, the tonsillar cancer, which is HPV-related, that is preventable, so so it makes complete sense to prevent it early on and make this an extinct disease.
1: You know, I, I think that in our society, which still has its puritanical roots, unfortunately, uh, well, I think it's unfortunately, um, I think that uh, parents of pre-adolescent boys A, uh, have a difficult time thinking about vaccinating for something that's clearly sexually related. And then there's also this feeling, I think, in a sexist society that boys are gonna be sexual in a way that they don't really worry so much about in the same way that we worry about girls' sexuality. So I wonder if some of these factors uh, play a role in people's resistance to vaccinating their young boys. I don't know.
2: I think they do, and it is really unfortunate
1: yeah, I agree. Um, you were telling us about biomarkers, uh, at least you mentioned it, and I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how biomarkers play in your uh, area of head and neck and endocrine cancers.
2: Sure, so uh, continuing on the theme of this, these tonsillar cancers in middle-aged men who are non-smokers who have mm, and who, who also never chewed tobacco, so it was a huge mystery as to why someone who has good habits still has these cancers. So it turns out that a certain marker, a protein called P16, in these cancers, this protein is seen in almost 100% of the cancer cells, greater than 90%, greater than 80%. So. These cancers, even without doing the HPV testing, P16 itself is a very um, reasonably priced, very economical test, and a pathologist like me can look at the slide under the microscope and say it's greater than 90%. What that means, it's a huge game changer in these tonsillar cancers. What that means is these patients, their prognosis is much better Than those related to smoking. Also, these patients, they are. Radiation therapy can be de-escalated, so they would require lesser dosage of radiation. And Stephen, you know that radiation burns tissues. Yes. It burns the mouth, it burns the gullet, it burns the esophagus and the respiratory mucosa. It's very painful, it can lead to, the burn in some patients can lead to so much uh, uh, necrosis of normal scarring. scarring, and necrosis of normal tissues, mm-hmm. that, and also necrosis of the bone. So sometimes the jaw is in the way to the tonsil. Mm. And the job, which is completely healthy, can undergo necrosis, and that is a known complication. Although rare, it's a known complication. So, reducing the dosage of radiation and spending fewer time, fewer number of weeks giving the patient radiation is a huge deal and a huge cost uh, cutting measure for the patient. So, I think that is one biomarker which has come up in the last uh, 10 years or so that is altering therapy. Hmm. Also, these patients do not need chemotherapy. Really? So with, with this kind of profile and, and this kind of P16 uh, um, Expression. overexpression, they would do well without chemotherapy. In contrast, uh, consular cancer related to smoking, those are P16 negative, but they are P53 positive. These cancers are going to behave poorly. Very badly. They need very badly. They need more radiation, and they need additional chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. So it's important to spend the dollars on the right patient and uh, not... Uh, escalate therapy in a patient who is going to do well with lesser therapy and hopefully fewer complications.
0: Dr. Manju Prasad is Professor of Pathology at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC and as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.